0: Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 150th show, so I appreciate everybody who's been watching it. And I know that Chuck has bought the book of every single person who's been on this show, so I greatly appreciate that. Uh, Today's guest is Sterling Hawkins, author of Hunting Discomfort. I just love the title, which was what drew me to the book. And then I, of course, read the book and thought, man, this is a fantastic book and people are really going to enjoy listening to you. So why don't you start off by telling us about your background?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't start off hunting discomfort. That's for sure. Uh, Yeah, the funny thing is I hear from people after they see the cover of the book, they're like, Sterling. Look at my business, my relationships, my bank account. I don't need to hunt discomfort. I'm surrounded by it. And my answer is all the, always the same, which is, well, you're not hunting discomfort. You're living within, probably placating um, why you have those things happening to you. Hunting discomfort means you're free of that discomfort. And, yeah, you know, Mark, just to get into a little bit of the background, I learned that the hard way, Um I was relatively successful early on. I grew up a fifth generation retailer, my family's grocery store, learned that store and the operations like the back of my hand. But right out of college, I thought, you know what? It's time to spread my wings a little bit. I still want to stay connected, but I want to do something new. So I started a retail software company with my dad. You can probably guess who our first customer was, my family's store. That's that's like lesson one today, Mark. Sell to the closest dollar, right? Of course. Yeah. Um So long story short, we end up selling it to a group in Silicon Valley, where it becomes part of this massive conglomerate that's like an Apple Pay before Apple Pay. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. We raised uh, $550 million, multi-billion dollar valuation, offices all over the world, 700 people. And I'm sure it's just a matter of time until this thing goes public, cashes in. And, you know, I crowned myself the next Steve Jobs so I could properly accept that congratulations from them. Of course. Um, But it didn't turn out that way. When the housing market collapsed, our funding dried up. The entire company goes bankrupt. Half a billion dollars gone. And when the company collapsed, so did I. And it wasn't like I got to choose the discomfort. It was like, I was thrown into the deep end of discomfort and everything that I went with it. And it was from some of those dark moments and dark experiences and questioning everything about myself and the world and whether or not I want to be here for the rest of this ride we call humanity that I realized there's real power in discomfort if we use it the right way. And that's what kind of started the journey and was the premise of the book. Before we talk about the book, uh, what's it like
0: being a keynote speaker at a big conference and how do you prepare and what's your mental mindset? I mean, because you've got there's a lot of discomfort doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in the the dark time, I'm going to get to that in just a second. The thing that scared me most was speaking in public. I couldn't look somebody in the eye not to mention stand up on a stage somewhere. It was totally debilitating for me. I was one of the many, maybe there's some of you here that would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Like anything other than standing on stage. And part of what I realized as I had like bottomed out, my girlfriend's broken up with me. I moved into my parents' house. I'm six figures of personal debt. I was like, I'm gonna go after these things that scare me. So I started speaking in public and it was debilitating early on. I couldn't get words out of my mouth. I'd be sweating. My hands would get clammy. Some of you that might be in the same boat that I was like, you know, those feelings. Uh, but I, I just kept at it. I kept doing it. And and today, funny enough, it is my favorite thing in the world to do. I just got off the stage. I was telling you, Mark, before we went live to um, 60 minutes ago, I walked off a stage. I was in front of 250, 300 people for an event here in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And it's, it's exhilarating. It's a rush. Like I love everything about it. And I'm incredibly grateful um, for the people that come that listen that are a part of this, no matter what movement and everything that comes with it. So I treat it very professionally, I get to sleep earlier than the night before I get up early, I do some kind of cardio exercise, usually I'm cycling, Um, I'll meditate, I'll say some prayers, I'll have a small breakfast, and then I get the show on the road. I, I, it sounds like all the same things I do, too, you know, riding
0: yeah. the bike, everything else. And yeah. well, uh, having some, sure, yeah. some process really helps. What, what do you like the most about getting up and speaking? Because like rock stars, right, they like sharing their music and they like the, the pulse of the uh, of the audience. That's why during yeah. the pandemic, it was life-sucking for them. So yeah. w- what's the part that you like most about getting up on stage?
1: Well, I think there's two things. One is is kind of ironic. It's the most peaceful time that I have ever, including times that I'm meditating or praying or anything else, because it's in those times that I literally let to, let to go of everything that concerns me. You know, are they going to like me? Is this going to go well? Do I remember what I want to say? What am I talking about? I get to let go of all of that. And just truly and authentically be present with the people that are there. So that's one piece of it. And the other piece is when I'm able to do that, I'm able to connect with different people. You know, the stories that people will share back to me about the impact that a few words that I shared had for them in their life is moving to me every single time. So those two things together, I think I'm I'm addicted. I'll never stop.
0: Yeah, I, I can gather that. So TED Talking, we've had quite a few people who've yeah. done TED Talks on this show because yeah. yeah. the amazing books that we've been able to get on. Tell me about what's that take to do a TED Talk? And when I first heard, them, I thought they were hour long, but they're short, yeah. uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes. So yeah. what's it take to prepare a really good TED Talk?
1: And, and what do you look to get out of that? yeah. Uh, So going into it, I was already speaking a fair bit. So when I was accepted to speak outside San Diego at the TEDx event there, I was like, oh, you know, I I got this. I'm a speaker. I'll figure it out. And uh, the person that was leading the event is like, throw out everything you thought you were going to talk about, everything you were going to say, all your principles, get rid of everything and be here right now. And let's have a conversation about what you're going to talk about. And it was really an exploration of some of the things I thought, what was going on with me, how I saw the world, that over a period of eight, 10, 12 weeks, however long it was, kind of crystallized a message, something that had always been inside of me. But it took that process of setting aside what I already knew to be able to discover that. And when the day came, I thought like, oh, it's, it's another keynote, I got it. It's shorter, it's going to be great. And you see that red circle up on stage, you're like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) This is a little different. So I was a little nervous giving it. But it was just, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Well, congratulations, because very few
0: people on the planet are asked to give TED Talks. And people, how many millions of people
1: must have watched yours already? Uh, Well, I wish millions. I think 150,000, something like that. For Lots nice. of people, more people yeah. than I've seen in person.
0: Yeah. I, I had somebody on and that, Laura Sicola, She's actually from Philly. 4.5 yeah. million. Wow. You can't even wrap your head around that many people know yeah. who she is uh, from yeah. listening
1: to that TED Talk. So w- why did you write this book? Uh, because I didn't like Discomfort. I thought it was something that I could avoid, I could deny, I could buckle down and just survive. Uh, like I see with many now, You know, we've got pandemic fallout, we've got tech disruption, global instability, supply chain disruption, inflation, looming depression, like you name it, we're dealing with it. And there's this natural tendency to do the same thing I did, avoid it, deny it, survive it, or hope, dope, and cope, right? Basically saying not deal with it head on. And having learned the hard way that it doesn't lead to a very good place over time, I said, you know what, there's something to what I've cultivated for myself. It was really just digging myself out of that hole when I was at my parents' house that I cared about initially. But as I went through that, and then my sister and others started to take these same steps that I was taking. That was transforming not just my life and my business, but who I am that I started to realize, Hey, this is something that I need to share. I need to put this on paper and talk about how hunting discomfort is the way to growth. And when you're really hunting it, you're free of it. And somewhat ironically, you live a a freer, happier life and all the results, time better spent, deeper connections, uh, more money, more business success all lives in that same place on the other side of discomfort. Uh,
0: You know, you always hear that from successful people that they'll um, make themselves do things that they really hate in order to get
1: beyond it. Yeah. Well, and I found some research that backs that up. Um, You know, we've all felt physical discomfort before, like you stubbed your toe or emotional discomfort, maybe lost a big sales deal or broke up with a loved one, something like that. Physical, mental, emotional, the brain and body process that discomfort almost identically. The research is on the University of Michigan. It's processed so similarly, you can take Tylenol, acetaminophen, and it will help you with emotional pain. Now, Mark, all the disclaimers about that. I'm not a doctor. It's not a biohack. I don't suggest you do that. But what I do suggest is we take the next step, which is if where you meet discomfort is the same anywhere, We can grow our capacity to deal with it everywhere. It's a muscle you build. You want to build your biceps, you go to the gym. You want to grow your resiliency, your breakthrough results. You want to have the impact in your business, your life, and your community, or the world. You hunt discomfort no matter what form it's in, and you get better at it over time.
0: You write, uh, what's the no matter what community,
1: and why did you create that? Yeah, Well, I didn't really create it on purpose. You know that saying misery loves company? Yep. Well, when you're hunting discomfort for growth, well, that loves company too. And very unintentionally, people started to join me. It was first my sister who came with me when I was uh, doing some of those early keynotes. And she, like too many young people, especially young women, dealt with an eating disorder and body dysmorphia. And she said, Sterling... I've seen what you've gone through. I've kind of understand how you're transforming yourself. I will be healthy no matter what. Well, today she's a championship bodybuilder. And then all of a sudden, somebody from my professional past, his name was Sophon. He uh, came to the U.S. as a Cambodian refugee, didn't really speak the language, was flat broke. He said, Sterling, I will be a successful entrepreneur. I kid you not. As the founder of a Cambodian beef jerky company, which I didn't even know was the thing, he is selling more than he can keep up with. Tell, and if tell it, his
0: if story, because we yeah. asked that question later, we might as well tell that story now.
1: Yeah, well, it, it was just that he came over, had nothing, uh, was working a bunch of odd jobs, just trying to keep uh, himself above water for his wife for his young kids. And he didn't just tell me that he was going to be an entrepreneur no matter what. He started sharing it with his boss, his friends, people around him, which gave them the opportunity to start holding him accountable to it. They started to listen to him in a new way. It wasn't just Sofin who's doing all these jobs. It's sofen who will be an entrepreneur. And when are you starting? How are you starting? And so he slowly got started making the Cambodian beef jerky at home. And he he went through all of these things, things that for many of us would stop us. You know, he took English language classes. He took business classes. He found mentors. Um, he, w- he was working like 24-7, this guy, between all the classes and the learning and keeping the odd jobs together. But it was really those commitments. It's the step in the no matter what system I call getting a tattoo. Not a real tattoo, but you commit in a way where there's no going back it's by making those commitments to those people around him and then asking those people to hold him accountable, that he's become hugely successful. I think he just bought like an R seven, one of those fancy, fancy supercars. He sent me a picture of it. I was like, no way. So, you know, from barely scraping by to now you're driving the supercar around the Bay area, California, like just, it's incredible. Um. So it, it was then him and then other people started to kind of join in like, oh, I've seen what Haviland's done and Sofin and all these people. And they started to realize, well, I, I want a little piece of that. Like, what are they doing? And it was first a few and then tens, then hundreds and then thousands of people all around the world declaring new visions, big and small, and hunting the discomfort necessary to achieve them. They were hitting new sales goals, new performance goals. They were speaking up and asking for help for some the very first time. Others were having difficult but necessary conversations. I realized, hey, wait a minute. This thing that I built for me isn't about me at all. It's about supporting others to achieve their dreams what they want to achieve in their lives and their businesses, no matter what they're facing, and wouldn't you know it, many of them have achieved their goals as well. And only within the last couple of years have we formalized that and said, okay, you know, there's a community here, a community of support, of listening, of accountability, where we can support each other to do those things because it is hard, right? There's no magic wand. There's no silver bullet. And as somebody that's tried all the easy ways out, I could tell you they don't work, but when you're willing to do the hard work, the deep work, the emotional work, the uncomfortable things that you probably don't want to face or don't want to look at, it will transform your results. Has for me, has for countless businesses and individuals all over the world. And that's what the, no matter what communities become.
0: That's what makes America great.
1: That's why there's yeah. a line of people in front of our door and
0: not in, not in front of the Russian door.
1: Uh, especially these in. days.
0: Yeah, especially these days. But I mean, I think that's why people come here is because they believe that's a a possibility for them. They think that they can do anything here. There was a woman I had who's um, helped her husband and partner start a software company called Grease Monkey that basically provides software across the country for all these. And she came into my office. I was running Penn State's Technology Development Center And she had two, one kid in each arm. She's wearing this white cable sweater. I can still remember it. And one Mm -hmm. of the kids is throwing up on her. And she's just saying, I'm here for information about starting, you know, for my uh, husband and his friend to start this company. Wow. Now, 15 years later, she is the CEO. It's a national company. And they sell it out to private equity. She had no interest in, in anything more than just getting the information. But they felt... They were good developers. They needed somebody who was organized. And before you knew it, she built this great company and was able to sell it to private equity for a significant amount of money.
1: I'll I'll tell you what, when you get rid of the safety nets and the plan Bs, and, and don't tell my financial planner this, by the way, like there's a time and a place for the plan B. But when you take those out of being an option for you, humans will naturally find a way. When you have a plan B, when you have a safety net, Inevitably, there's going to be circumstances of the world that will have you take that as an option. I think we've got to be especially careful about that in this country these days because comfort is so accessible. You know, I don't have to leave my place if I don't want to. I could do some work on Zoom. I could order food via Uber Eats or something. I can be entertained on Netflix, right? I don't have to be uncomfortable in any way. Which is not how we've been developed, how we've evolved to handle discomfort. It used to be if you didn't handle the discomfort of being cold, you froze, maybe to death. If you didn't go after the discomfort of being hungry and figure out where you're going to eat, you went hungry and maybe perished. So they were forced to deal with their discomfort. And these days, we're not forced, many of us. It is optional. So we have to consciously make the decision to step up and out of our comfort zone when we're, many of us are blessed with not having to on a regular basis. So why is
0: feeling discomfort so important? Cause you keep giving examples, but why is it important? Cause people think, yeah. or are listening, saying, shit, the last thing I want, there's so much stress in my life. The last yeah. thing I want is this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's not a mistake of evolution. Discomfort is there to tell us something about our circumstances. You know, if you look back in the caveman days, like we were saying, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this hunger. I've got to go do something about that, right? Like it's driving our behavior. Now, what's happened in modern times is we can avoid that discomfort and we miscalibrate our discomfort with the world where where we feel discomfort is no longer associated with our survival. I'll give you a good example of that. Speaking on stage, hugely uncomfortable for me back in the day, but there's no real risk there, right? Nobody's going to jump on stage and tackle me or, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble of any sort. I might mess up, but there's no real physical danger there. And so we have these miscalibrated discomfort muscles based on our comfort zone. And what happens is that our results are determined not by the things that we're willing to do, but by the things we're not willing to do. And when discomfort stops us, we literally get stuck. Yeah, I think the prevailing narrative is like, we'll find some more grit and work harder. I got to tell you, as somebody that really works hard and knowing people that work literally 18 hours a day and have for 25 years, hard work is not the only answer. It might be necessary, but it's not the only thing. It's going after the things that are uncomfortable that are going to give us those breakthrough and sometimes surprising results. If we don't deal with discomfort, it works kind of like a governor does on a car. Right. No matter how hard you hit the gas, no matter how hard you work, you just can't go any fast. You can't get any new results. And I found this really interesting Norwegian research that said when you're avoiding, denying or surviving discomfort, you're not dealing with the things that are causing that fear, anger, grief, anxiety, embarrassment, whatever it is. If you're not dealing with the essence of that, the core of that, where that comes from, it leaves us not unwilling to do the things we know how to do but unable. We know exactly what to do. We've learned all the things from YouTube and great podcasts like this and college and books and the internet, but discomfort stops us. Now the flip side is also true. Research at Yale says that when you're experiencing discomfort, you're in the throes of it, right? Maybe your heart's beating, your adrenaline's coursing through your vein, your palms get a little bit sweaty. Whatever discomfort is for you, you're primed to learn up to four times faster. Biologically, it's a biohack to be better, faster, and smarter. It's not something to avoid. Now, I wish they told me this back when I was taking the SATs or in college because I'd be sitting in the front row on a bed of nails. Yeah. But now I know like this is literally something that we can use to advance us personally, professionally in life, in every area. And it's massively important and many of us miss because why? It doesn't feel very good.
0: Well, and isn't that why entrepreneurs, when they're against the wall, like you were, all of a yeah. sudden you be, you start to pivot and you start to think about better ideas that your company could use. Because if you don't, you're out of business. And all the people who are counting on you and your employees, yeah. your investors, your vendors, everybody. I mean, it's a lot of people when you think about it, yeah. you you have to move quickly. You don't have $5 billion sitting behind you. And like, yeah, I think I'll just take the rest of the week off. I one right. time was touring a, a major pharmaceutical company with the CEO and uh, the CEO. I said, why do you invest in startups? He goes, let me show you something. And it was after five o'clock and nobody was there. And we went to the gym. At the pharma company and was filled he goes that's why i invest in sarps because those guys are working 12 14 hours a day to become us and uh, that's who i want that's what i'm counting on is get licensing their drugs and putting it through our system i'm not counting on us because we're sitting on five billion dollars in cash and everybody knows it so they don't have this sense of urgency
1: yeah, right on. I mean, it's, it's really easy to get comfortable and then reason and rationalize why you can't have the results that you want. You know, my mom, she had all these sayings when I was a kid, but one of them came back to me during that hard time. She used to say things like, it's cheaper than milk a cow than buy one. like, what? Or um, don't take any wooden nickels. I still don't know what that one means. But the one that came back to me and means so much to me now is the way out is through. It's actually Robert Frost, but to me, it'll always be my mom. And it means we've got to go through the uncomfortable, the things we're fearful of, scared of, embarrassed about, maybe even shameful of. And what we're looking for is on the other side. And as somebody that's gone through some of his deepest, darkest fears, I can tell you, my mom's right. The way out is through. We just have to commit to going through no matter what.
0: Uh, What's the process you use initially
1: uh, for hunting for discomfort? Yeah, well, the first thing is you've got to notice it. Just by our own humanity, we've built our business and our lives to avoid discomfort because it doesn't feel very good. So it takes something to start to reorient yourself to where are those discomfort points, right? We're hunting discomfort. I call it the first step in the no matter what system. Is it in a particular relationship? Is it asking for money? Is it a cold call? Is it saying something to somebody, right? It's first identifying where that discomfort is for you. And then you take the second step. I call it get a tattoo. Not a real tattoo, but look for ways you can commit to going through that discomfort where there's no going back. This is where you get rid of your safety nets, the plan B. You burn that proverbial bridge. You find that place where there's no going back. And you need people on your side to help. It's not an easy process. You need what I call a, a street gang. No switchblades, no cut glass. You don't need a bandana. And because Mark, I know you've got kind of a rowdy group here. I'm not suggesting you yeah. do anything unlawful. It's about surrounding yourself with people that are going to hold you accountable to what you want to achieve. By the way, research shows when you're personally accountable, that means you've got a specific deliverable, specific day, specific time with a specific person you're not 60, 70, 80, or even 90% more likely to achieve the goal. You're 95% more likely to achieve that goal. And by the way, as a team, it's even better. When you hold each other accountable, you're almost four times as likely to achieve that goal. I call it creating a no matter what culture. So that's the third step, build the street gang. The fourth step is near and dear to me because I'm somebody that likes to avoid the conflict and the problems and the circumstances. I like to cover up the proverbial warp. There's inherent strength in those things if and only if you take the time and have the courage to find it. We can talk about some stories there if you like later, Mark. Uh, And the fifth step is surrender. Not give up, not sit on the couch and watch Netflix and order a pizza but accept things exactly as they are and exactly as they're not. Carl Jung, arguably the father of modern psychology, said you cannot change anything until we accept it. Condemnation, condemnation about anything, your team, your community, inflation, looming depression, the war in Europe, your supply chain, condemnation about any of those things does not liberate. It oppresses and makes it very hard to do much else. And so when you're able to surrender to something greater than yourself, give over the things that you cannot control and you can't change, that's where you actually grow from discomfort. You open your mind to new perspectives and you soften your heart to those uncomfortable feelings. And that is when they move through you and you're forever free of them. And that is growth. That's the no matter what system.
0: You wrote that we all hope for the perfect life of where we think everything is ideal, but that never happens. I I get because I was one of the Inc. Entrepreneur of the Year and I thought, and I'd been a finalist four times. I finally won the fourth time and I thought I'm going to feel fulfilled. That all lasted less than a day. Why is that? And why is it so hard to find
1: contentment? Isn't that interesting? Like, it, it feels like I just need to reach this certain point. Like, if only I was in this relationship. If only I could close this sale, if only I had this much money, then I'd be happy. Then I can do all these other things. But it's a moving target, right? You might reach that goal. You might have the bank account. You might get married to that person. But then the target's moved and it's something else. Well, now I only need that next thing. I need to reach that next level. And we're on a treadmill that never ends. And it's because we're seeking... Not hunting, but seeking comfort and certainty from the external world. We're looking for a certain amount of money, a relationship, a bank account number, whatever it is that gives us comfort in this world. But the thing is, and everybody already knows this, but I invite you to take it into your heart in a new way, which is tomorrow's not guaranteed to any of us at any level. We cannot know what comes next. And what we do, just naturally as humans, is we take that knowledge from the past of what I need to be safe, who I am, my identity, how I define my market, my family, my community, the world. We take that knowledge from the past and we put it out there in the future because it makes us feel better, but it just anchors us to the results from the past. Now, when we give up some of those external things, we surrender to something greater. And I'm talking... Things like love, joy, gratitude, and peace, things that somewhat ironically, no matter what happens, can never be taken away from you. That's where we start to find fulfillment. That's where we find joy. That's where we find happiness because we've found peace within ourselves based on no circumstances of the world other than what's in your own heart. And when we turn our attention inwards, that's when we're able to shift ourselves, how we see the world. And the results that everybody wants of, oh, well, I want business growth. I want more money. I want these relationships. I want the sales. I want deeper connections. I want time better spent. They're all the results, not the goal. Um, people talk, this is a question from the audience. Yeah. People
0: talk about you have to be happy where you are and enjoy the process. Did yeah. you get to a point where you enjoyed the discomfort or were you always looking forward to get to the other side?
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of times people look at me and they're like, Sterling, you must be like some kind of thrill seeker. Like you're an adrenaline jump junkie. You've jumped out of planes and dive with sharks and trek the Sahara, like all these things. Like you must get a high from it. And the truth is I'm scared doing many of those things. Yeah. Like there's something in me that's terrified of jumping out of a plane, right? It just seems inhuman in some ways. I did it. Yeah, it's terrifying. What was for me? Was it, was it for you? You know,
0: ironically, it was not terrifying because um, you're thinking about all the things that you have to do and all those mental, uh, all that checklist. So I jump out, I fall down, it shoots right back up. I'm literally thinking about all these things. I you're, enjoyed you're the ride afterward. Yeah. All my mom did was say, God damn, how would I raise such a stupid child?
1: But um, <laughs> who does that? Yeah, yeah well, it and I think more than trying to find some happiness, what happens when you go through these uncomfortable moments is you start to release limiting beliefs about yourself, things that you've held true, probably from childhood, um, that are no longer serving you. and you go through these uncomfortable moments and it starts to force you to see yourself in a new way. You know, as somebody that quote unquote couldn't speak in public, now doing it, I've broken a belief about myself that I thought was true. And so it's not so much finding a happiness. It's more releasing the limiting beliefs that have been in the way and a joy starts to emerge. Now, to the point of the question, oftentimes I still catch myself like trying to get somewhere. I got, we just got to do this. We just got to do that. We got to launch a new website. We got to post this. And then when I do catch myself, I come back to it and say, no, no, it's, it's right here. And the more I can be here the more all those other things are going to happen.
0: Another question from the audience, people who have ADHD and yeah. constant state, or in a constant state of anxiety, what strategies uh, one should use to reduce anxiety and improve their focus
1: and attention? Yeah, so th- this is a great question and one that's really near and dear to my heart As somebody that suffered from chronic uh, anxiety and depression, especially when that company collapsed. I was so hepped up on those things. I literally could not feel anything. I was as numb as you possibly could get. Now, I think what's important in that moment is distinguishing what's actually dangerous from what's just uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to stand on the stage, but it's not dangerous. It's uncomfortable to jump out of an airplane but it's actually more dangerous to drive in your car to the place where you're going to do it. And so as you get related to what's actually material in this world, what research then you, can you find that actually distinguishes what's dangerous? You can start to take small steps into things that are uncomfortable, but still safe. Uh, therapists would call it exposure therapy where you expose yourself to that thing that causes anxiety or discomfort over and over again in increasingly large ways. You know, if you're afraid of dogs, for example, maybe you start looking at dogs and then you look at a dog across the street and then you're in the same room as a dog. And then eventually you get closer to the dog. Right. You are acclimating your nervous system to realize that, well, that dog is not that scary. I can be in this room with the dog. And it's the same thing for whatever you might be anxious about. The more you can give yourself kind of a micro dose of that discomfort or micro dose of that anxiety, you start to maybe not get rid of the anxiety, but be able to grow greater than it. Another question from the audience. Um, oh, uh,
0: Gen Z famous for talking about a need for a different perspective on life. The hard hmm. hustle is not as attractive to them as it was to the baby movers. They want to balance yeah. it and work and life. We say they're lazy. They say they are smart. Who's right here? And are Generation Z destined for failure if they don't push and seek discomfort?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I would say we all need to hunt discomfort and go through the uncomfortable things. And I don't know if I can make like a catch all statement here. I don't know if I would say one is right and the other's wrong. Discomfort is a very personal thing. And what's uncomfortable for me will be not uncomfortable for you. We were talking about it earlier, like, Mark, you're not afraid to speak in public. I was terrified of it. So discomfort is a very personal thing. And I think what Gen Z's realized is that hard work doesn't do it. They've watched their parents and their grandparents spend their lives working you know, 18 some hours a day and end up in about the same place that they started. Maybe their house is a little bit bigger, their retirement plans a little bit fatter, but it's not drastically different. And they've given up all these experiences in their life, being able to travel or do some of the things they want to do in order to do it. And Gen Z seen, well, if it, it's not hard work, it must be something else. Now, on the flip side of that, I don't think just living the easy life is the way. I think we need to be able to choose discomfort, like we're saying. We need to go out there and hunt it in order to be able to grow. So I don't know if that's the best answer to the question, but that's what I have to say about it.
0: So uh, you talk about surrendering and quitting. What's the difference
1: between those two things? Is that semantics? Uh, Well, quitting is giving up, right? I'm going to run the race, but it's raining this day, so I'm I'm not going to do it. Or uh, I want to double the size of my business this year. And then, oh, well, we've got a pandemic, scrap that. Or I want to hire a certain number of people. Whatever the goal is, when you quit, you give up. You know it. You no longer are taking actions towards the goal. Surrendering is decidedly different. It's accepting things exactly as they are and exactly as they're not. This is when you're giving up Your limiting beliefs, your resentment that things are the way that they are, your anger about the way they are, maybe grief even from the past. You're giving those things up, probably letting them move through you and freeing yourself from them. When you surrender to something greater, it frees you to be able to move forward and you're no longer stuck with that discomfort. You know, so often we get focused on uh, what German American philosopher and theologian Paul Tillage was called finite things, right? I need to buy a house. I need to open up this many locations. I need to sell this many things, all these finite things. And he says, well, you know, we have to deal with that. We're human. But somewhat ironically, they're not the most important things. Nobody gets to their deathbed and is like, look how much money I made. The most important things, what Tillage calls are your infinite concerns. Again, things like love, joy, gratitude, and peace. And when we're able to surrender those things, we're able to summon the human experience of love in a moment when you're really angry at your spouse, or you summon the experience of gratitude when your biggest customer calls you and cancels your contract when we're able to bring those things in the present moment, the hard moment, we surrender to those things, that's what moves us forward. And that to me is what surrender is about. (laughs) It's too much for you that one, Mark? Yeah, too
0: much. Hmm. Uh, Why does Dr. Edna Foa, I hope I pronounced that correctly, a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, which is just up the street from me, that's have cool. uh, have victims talk about what they went through. What, what's the value of
1: reliving all that? Yeah. Yeah. So this is really important. She doesn't just talk them through the experience. It's just to set a little context. She's a, a therapist that works with women that have been through like the most awful of the awful, the beatings, the rapes, like as bad as you can imagine, these are the women that she works with. And she has these women into sessions where they're not just recalling intellectually, here's what happened to me, but they're reliving those experiences. And maybe for many of them, for the first time, expressing whatever is in their body about those things. So a lot of screaming, a lot of tears, fear, anger, grief, like all these things are expressed out of them in these sessions where it's. Um, very physiolo- physiological in nature. It's not like, oh, this happened, that happened. It's not a report. They're reliving those things. And when they're brave enough, courageous enough to relive those things with the guidance of her therapy, it frees them from those emotions. They're no longer stuck with them. So in a day and age when you know we're prescribing drugs to numb just about everything, She's going the opposite way, and women are walking out of her sessions, sometimes one, sometimes a handful, no longer needing some of those numbing drugs, no longer cowering in the corner about what they can't do. But when they've expressed those things, that discomfort that they've held on to inside of them, like we've been saying, they're free of it. And they, they're they able to rejoin their families and communities and businesses in ways that have just been transformative. Her work is really important. Uh, you write about uncertainty, which
0: is something that prevents many people from becoming entrepreneurs, moving to new cities, for, yeah. being, uh, for better opportunities and life-changing events. And yeah. that there are two types, objective and subjective. Could you explain the differences and provide some examples here?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um uh, Uncertainty is something that we all face on a daily basis, but we don't recognize it, right? Like I said earlier, tomorrow's not promised to any of us, but we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about all the concerns of the immediate finite things that we have to deal with. Oh, what's going to happen in that meeting? Is so-and-so going to show up on time? I've got to get my kid to school, right? We're so concerned with these finite things. And what we do Is instead of facing that unknown, which we will all face in the end, instead of facing it, we put all that stuff from the past into the future and it makes us feel a little bit better. Oh, I can just deal with getting my kid to school and I don't have to confront that I'm not promised any time after lunch. Like that's a big human thing to deal with. And there, you know, as you're saying, Mark, there are two kinds of uncertainty. I grew up in upstate New York, kind of by Saratoga, where there's a big horse racing track. And I'm not a big gambler by any means. But, you know, growing up there, at least after I turned 18, I would go up to the track sometimes, and I would place a bet on one of the horses. Now, objective uncertainty is one of those horses will win and the rest will lose. I either get paid for my gamble or I've lost my money. Objectively, it's black and white. I can see very clearly what happened. Now, the question is, well, should we be gambling in the first place? Should I be gambling? Is it good for society? Is it good for upstate New York? Is it good for me personally? And that's subjective, right? There's no black and white answer to that. That's just our interpretation of the situation. Now, the thing is, it all comes down to subjective uncertainty, you know, maybe your marketing dollars—you can see, well, I get a better ROI when I do Google Ads versus um, billboards. But should you be marketing in either of those ways, right? There's there's a step back that leaves it all subjective to should we be doing that in the first place? And I think to be able to conquer both kinds of that uncertainty is really having a deep conversation with ourselves and saying, well, what would we want our lives to be about? What's important to me as a human being? When I'm on my deathbed or when I have grandkids, like what do I want my life to be about? And it's not gonna be about the finite things. It's gonna be about- The connection, the peace, the experiences that you've had, and the more we can come to terms with that, the earlier, the better we're going to be able to deal with uncertainty in any walk of life.
0: Uh, A lot of people don't think that they have creative genes, but you write that this can be learned along with being an innovator and lateral thinking. Uh, Please tell those who don't believe it how they can master or just be better at it
1: yeah well, it, it's just something that we practiced. You know, presumably all of us on this call learned English. We know how to get on a zoom meeting. we know how to connect to the internet. like we've learned new things, and that's really all creativity and innovation is is learning something new, but the muscle works a little bit differently. It's not just adding to the knowledge that we have, it's changing our perspective about seeing the world around us. And I've got some fun exercises in the book like if you've got a problem most of us are going to be inclined to say well let's back off from the goal then if we can't hit 100% let's hit 95% or 90% well what if you create a bigger problem how would you solve that so you're reframing whatever it is that you're looking at and you're getting better at being a little more creative uh, another fun one I'd like is if you look at movies or superheroes, or maybe your mentor, people you admire, you can look at whatever's in front of you and say, well, if I was them, how would I handle that situation? Again, that's flexing your creativity muscle. You're thinking laterally, you're thinking differently. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I can tell you that from firsthand experience.
0: Uh, The whole world was thrown off by the pandemic, especially restaurant and hospitality industry. Also the Uh, speaking
1: business, I can tell you that. (laughs) What's that? Also the speaking business. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had
0: quite a few people who were speakers and watched in in almost two years wiped out. Yeah. Uh, What did you learn from the pandemic about uncertainty and what advice did you
1: give your followers? Yeah, Uh, well... The pandemic was serious. We had to deal with it in each of our own ways, but it's still not an excuse. If we look at the restaurant industry, for example, they've got all the excuses in the book, right? The government's forcing me to close my doors. Um, They're not getting me some of those PPE loans as fast as I need them. I'm gonna let go of my team members, right? And nobody faults them for that, myself included. I'm not saying that's wrong. But at the same time, there was a restaurant called the Addo in Seattle, run by a gentleman. His name's Eric Rivera. And he said, you know what? (coughs) I'm not buying into all of those things. They're excuses. Now, we need to follow the law. We need to do what we need to do. But how do we continue to meet our growth goals and the goals that we have to serve our community and my team members, regardless of these circumstances? And they came up with some really interesting things. They said, okay, well, we've got all this wait staff team. Instead of delivering to people's tables, well, they could deliver to people's homes and they created their own delivery service with special trucks and uh, everything else. And they said, well, you know, we've got another problem that of all the things that we have on our menu, we can't get many of them. Remember, this is a time when many of us couldn't even get toilet paper. Like it was like a war zone out there to some degree. So, they couldn't get items on the menu. And they said, well, instead of letting that stop us, instead of letting that be an excuse where we just have unavailable on all these things on our menu, why don't we create a special menu every single day based on the things that we know we already have in our kitchen? And wouldn't you know it, through those things and a number of other things they did, thinking differently, not just working harder, working within the hard guidelines that we all had, he was able to grow his business bigger than even when he had the doors open and you think about this like this is a restaurant during a pandemic the worst time in restaurant history and all of humanity worst time for restaurants and this guy made a commitment to continue to go through it like what can we do what can I do with my resources my connections my commitments and you know so Again, the pandemic—something to contend with. There's rules, there's laws, there's legislation, there's personal responsibility, but it doesn't have to be an excuse to achieve whatever it is that you're committed to. Um, in the
0: book, you provide an example of people and organizations that handled it reasonably well. Can you talk hmm. about what uh, uh, about that and what we learned, especially from this Japanese company? Am I pronouncing it right, Homakin?
1: Homicon, I, I believe. I mean, your pronunciation might be as good as mine. Um, but they did something similar. You know, I think hotels and hospitality was like number two on the worst industries to be in during a pandemic. And instead of just closing their doors and calling it quits and maybe filing bankruptcy, they said, OK, well, how can we work within these constraints to continue to grow regardless of the circumstances? Same as that restaurant add And they said, "Okay, well, this this could be something interesting for us. They found that there were many writers around the hotel that were spending the time in the during the pandemic to finish their manuscripts. And they said, wait a minute. What if we open certain rooms in our hotel and retrofit them to look like writers rooms of old? We put in, you know, old style phone systems and everything else. And we even teach our staff, masked up and everything else within the proper precautions, to ask all of the guests how they're coming on their manuscript, acting like you know, somebody that they're they're working with. So they've created this whole experience within the guidelines that they have, and it was similar to them as Addo. They started booking rooms when everybody else was flat out empty. The obstacle becomes the way. The way out is through. Again, it's just another situation of we need to be willing to go through, let go of those limiting beliefs, surrender to something greater, no matter what's going on. I really love the creativity behind that story. Mm. It's crazy, right? And, and there, there are other stories of these things. And you know, again, I just look at you know, here are these people, these businesses, these communities with their back up against the wall. And when they didn't have a plan B, look at how cool, look at how meaningful, how transformative some of these things were. And they're not special people. We all have those skills. Yes, we can practice them. We can get better at being more creative, more um, innovative, but their skills are there for all of us. We just have to be brave enough to use them. By the way, I wouldn't have started
0: this podcast if it wasn't for the pandemic. I started it two weeks into the pandemic and only to keep people engaged and and myself engaged because people just had nothing to do. And look, the whole reason if that pandemic had not come about, I wouldn't have started a podcast at all. Wow. Right. Right. Just another example. I love it. Uh, I love the story and we are, so many of us are familiar with Michael uh, Dubin's story of the dollar shave Club um, yeah. please talk about how he solved his father-in-law's problem of having an overwhelming number of razor blades that on the surface look like a significant future loss w- what did we learn from this that
1: anyone can apply yeah well it, maybe some of you know the story but it was Michael's friend's father who had a factory with all of these just kind of -of run-of-the-mill razor blades and if you would look at the razor blade market when they launched it was full of you know triple blade razors and vibrating razors and you know like all these doohickeys they've added onto this thing to make shaving massively expensive at least for those of us that shave yeah right (laughs) and he looked at this and he said you know what what if we do the opposite of everybody else? I think that's what we can take from this, right? Everybody's doing one thing. What if we do the opposite? He said, what if we take all these kind of generic razor blades, and instead of dressing them up with all these fancy and expensive add-ons, what if we just sell them kind of cut rate, really simple, really easy? Of course, it helped that he made a viral video when they launched the company. But it was from a a problem of all these razor blades stacked up in the corner in an old warehouse that they created a company. I think they sold it for like a billion dollars or something, something crazy, right? Yeah, right. From a problem and from a way of approaching that industry nobody else was, and so if everybody in your market is doing something. The answer is not always the opposite, but it's at least worth glancing in that direction to see, well, maybe there's something there I can learn from, or there's a building blocks of something that I can do differently here that'll be a standout. And you know, my my hope that you also sell it for a billion dollars. I didn't realize that tanks
0: were created by looking at battleships. And yeah. I'm not into history and especially military history. You yeah. talk about taking what other people, industries, and companies do and yeah. use those ideas for another industry. And mm-hmm. How do you keep yourself in your organization looking at other industries and people to come up with ideas that can be adopted for one's own organization?
1: Yeah. well, There's actually a Netflix special specifically on how tanks were built. And that's where I learned that Indeed, the idea was inspired by ships. They said, oh, lots of protection, big guns. What if we took that that floats on the water and put it on land and tanks were born? Now, I don't think it's worth leaving those things up to chance. You know, what I do to be able to look at other industries and other professionals to bring some of their creativity or ideas into what I'm doing is having a system for it. I don't wait for a problem. I don't wait until our backup is up against the wall. We schedule time every month. I'm in business with my sister. So every month we get together and she's done a little research. I've done a little research and we spend time taking a look at what other people are doing. And we do what she calls lovingly the stupid brainstorm, which means everything's game you can say anything nobody's allowed to make fun of everybody sky's the limit like just imagine anything that's crazy off the wall or maybe seemingly stupid and so you know some of the best ideas that we've had in our business have come from those brainstorms and it comes not just happenstance it comes because every month we've got it on the schedule and I think that's the key spend time on the calendar that you stick to, where you're looking to well reinvent yourself, your company, look for new and different ways to do things. When you've systematized it, you don't have to leave it to chance and you'll come up with some of those great ideas uh, when you're not even expecting it.
0: That's why I love uh, attending conferences of diverse industries. Mm. Say, man, you know what? That would be really good to be repurposed in whatever I'm doing. Or, right. you know, hearing somebody doing something saying, you know, what if I just did it slightly different? I I, I actually did that for one of my ventures yeah. and we raised $3.2 billion for this wow. idea of reverse factoring only because I saw some guy in Guatemala uh, doing what I thought was something similar, but I thought it could be yeah. infinitely bigger. Um, there are many examples of people face problems head on and became very successful. I, I like the story of Michelle. Could you please tell us about
1: that and what we can learn from Michelle? Yeah, well, Michelle's one of the members in our no matter what community that really went through some difficult times. Uh, she got married to her high school sweetheart. They had a child. And unfortunately, he became abusive to her, both emotionally and physically. And she lived with that for a while. She had all the reasons and the excuses and placated him, right? But the fact remained, she was in a situation that was highly uncomfortable and dangerous to her and her daughter. Now, what she did is she relied on her friends. She moved out. She's eventually gotten a divorce, but she didn't go the traditional route. By traditional route, I mean kind of battening down the hatches, telling everybody like, oh, I'm fine, showing up at work, doing what you got to do, going through the motions when you're dying inside, right? This is somebody she thought she was going to spend the rest of her life with, and all of a sudden, that's come crashing down in spectacular order. Instead of just trying to, quote, unquote, survive, avoid, or deny the discomfort that she went to, she was brave enough to share with her friends. Her family, the people she worked with. Hey, listen, here's what I'm going through. Here's some of the uncomfortable things that I'm moving through, maybe letting some of those emotions out and going through that process, confronting a new reality of her life, her relationships, her family, her business. She's since been promoted. She now uh, runs marketing for a global big public company. She lives happily in her own house with her daughter, which she spends most of her time with. She just got a new dog. But it took confronting those really deep, dark, uncomfortable things to be able to create this new reality versus surviving it forever. And it does take that bravery that Michelle had. Her real name's not Michelle, by the way. We changed the name for the book uh, Mm -hmm. that she had to be able to confront some of those things. So
0: I'm Uh, constantly
1: inspired by her
0: we're almost at the end. So is there one last piece of advice you would tell people and maybe a story along with it that you learned from somebody else in your group that you said, you know, this would really be worth uh, thinking about? Because I've seen, you know, I think we've all come across people who somehow have gotten over discomfort, whatever that may be. I know a Holocaust survivor itself, I've two camps. Married right. a Holocaust survivor, had four kids. The husband died in a car crash, forty some years into their marriage, and then the son, another son, died in a car crash six months after that. Mm-hmm. And yet, you go into her house, and there's a picture of her and uh, and Bill Clinton and uh, the guy who did Schindler's List. Um, wow. And she's in the middle. She wow. could have never guessed in the 1940s, when she's in a camp, that she's going to be staying in the most famous. Film- Famous filmmaker and the president of the United States. So what's the the thing that you would like people to walk away with here that could help them on an everyday basis?
1: Yeah, well, one of the things is another quick pandemic story. Um, Emmanuel, who's in the no matter what community, lost his job beginning of the pandemic. And he had just gotten married. He's building his family. Not a good time to lose your job. And he went out. And he didn't just commit to something. He got a literal tattoo of the company he wanted to start on. I think it was his right bicep. I don't know how he explained that away to his wife, by the way. That's not like the easiest transition. Yeah. But what that did, that commitment for him and for all of us, is he was able to look to it when things got really hard, when he wanted to quit, as his bank account's depleting. When you give yourself an out, again, you'll take it. But he had it literally tattooed on him. And today, he just texted me not too long ago, right before the book came out, actually. He started an eight-figure marketing company. Wow. The way out is always through. We just have to go through no matter what. Sterling, I have to say, I love the
0: hour and it went too fast. I hope you're going to write another book so we can have you back. Uh, for sure and it was fantastic uh, essentially no one left the entire hour so you had them riveted here so thank, thank you so you much so for that. taking the time with us and i'm sure a lot of people are going to be buying this book and we'll be marketing it out ourselves as well Mark, everybody so totally have sure. a wonderful weekend look forward to seeing you all next friday
1: thank you everyone
0: thank you for listening to another episode of the best business minds tune in every friday at 12 p.m eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.